0: Uh, good afternoon. I'm Mark Calabria. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm honored to serve as our moderator at today's book forum. Uh, the recent financial crisis and the government response, uh, I believe, has illustrated the incredible degree to which both Washington and Wall Street have been joined at the hip. Uh, I can think of a few people who have managed to navigate both Washington and Wall Street as successfully as Robert Posen, author of today's book that is the focus of our book form, Too Big to Save, How to Reform Our Financial financial System. Uh, Bob spent almost four years near the beginning of his long career as Associate General Counsel at the Securities and Exchange Commission. Since that time, he has served in various leadership positions at Fidelity Investments, Rising to vice chairman of the company as well as president of its portfolio management and research areas. Uh, throughout his career, Bob has also regularly contributed to teaching and research, having served at various times as a visiting professor or lecturer at Georgetown Law School, New York University Law School, Harvard Law, MIT, and Harvard Business School. Uh, we are also honored this afternoon to have two distinguished discussants to provide comments on Bob's book and presentation. Our first discussant, Kenneth Benston, is another one of the few who have managed to succeed both in the arenas of Washington and Wall Street. Ken currently serves as the Executive Vice President for Public Policy and Advocacy at SIFMA, the Securities, Industry, and Financial Markets Association. Uh, from 1995 to 2003, Ken served as a member of the House uh, of representatives serving on both the House Financial Services Committee and the House Budget Committee. Uh, while my own time as staff on the Senate Banking Committee only overlapped Ken's service by a couple of years, I can say for myself that there are few members on that committee that as well-respected for their knowledge and expertise as Ken was on both sides of the aisle. Uh, our final discussant this afternoon is Philip Swagel, who currently teaches at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. Uh, most recently, Dr. Swagel served as Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy at the Treasury Department. His time at the Treasury Department coincided with the worst of the financial crisis. I just – cause it, there's no causation implied there. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I would also recommend, uh, from his insights to that crisis, he 's written a terrific paper uh, in the spring '09 Brookings Papers on Economic Activity uh, that really is the I believe' it's still currently the only insider's account uh, of the financial crisis from Treasury, and I think an indispensable piece of uh, history. Uh, with that, I want to welcome all of our speakers and welcome to our audience and turn the podium over to Bob.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. So, uh, so I'm going to speak for a few minutes, and I'm going to begin with this quote, well-known quote from Brahma Emanuel, and uh, it turns out it's from Machiavelli. So there is a relationship there, not well-known, uh, and. He's speaking about crisis, and, you know, I took a little survey anecdotal of people on the street, and it turns out that most people think we have a financial crisis once every 20 or 30 years. There are many people who say, well, we have this financial crisis and the uh, Great Depression. But as I point out in my book, uh, between 75, 1975 and 1995, there are actually counted by a group at Berkeley uh, 139 financial crises across the world, and roughly 38 of them were in advanced industrial societies. Since then, we've obviously had the Asian financial crisis, the dot-com bust, and this. So when you think about it, uh, rather than being the exception financial crisis may be the norm, and stability may be the exception. And in our lifetimes, it's fairly predictable that every 10 or 12 years, we're going to have two financial crises. What we don't know is when exactly it's going to happen. So I'd like to talk today a little about a few of the issues that I think we haven't resolved, and that would be critical to resolve if we're going to try to reduce the frequency and severity of financial crisis. So the first ones relate to home mortgages, and um, we, I think we all know that one of the big issues was that people had subprime mortgages and didn't put uh, down payments down. Uh, the, the unfortunate uh, thing is that we are still doing this. Uh, we have just extended the tax credit for first time home buyers. Uh, and so, for an FHA mortgage, you need to put down 3.5 percent, but then you can get that 3.5 percent back with a refundable tax credit up to $8,000. Similarly, we have a program now for modifying uh, mortgages, and it concentrates on monthly payments. But one third of all mortgages in the U.S. now are underwater. Meaning that the fair value of the house is below the outstanding balance of the mortgage. And one thing we know is if you have zero or negative equity in a house, your chances of defaulting are very high. So we may be modifying all these mortgages and wind up just in a situation where we have a very high redefault rate. Now, related to this is another very serious problem of securitization. So I'm going to just ask for volunteers here. Is In 2006, before we had the financial crisis, what percentage of credit in the U.S. do you think was extended by banks? Can someone tell me the answer to that? Anyone want to volunteer with a percentage? What do you say? Sir? Anyone? Zero percent? No, we're talking about 2006? Yeah, by commercial banks. What percentage was commercial banks? 40%. Okay, turns out that the number is about 20 to 25%. And it's much lower than most people think. And most credit, 75%, is done by non-bank lenders, auto companies, credit card companies, uh, mortgage brokers. And they basically depend on loan securitization. In the loan securitization process, let's just take a mortgage. I make a mortgage to a home buyer, I sell it to the secondary market, Uh, somebody like Citigroup pulls them, and then they issue securities based on different claims for the cash flow. In 2006, we securitized about $1.2 trillion in mortgages. This year, we'll be lucky if we do $40 or $50 billion. So this whole process of loan securitization has broken down. And if we ask, as the President did several weeks ago, why are banks not lending, it's not the right question. The question is, why haven't we gotten loan securitization going? Because if we don't get that going, we're not going to have loan volume going again in the U.S. Now, to get loan securitization going is a big deal, and we need to start on it. We really haven't. First is we need to make sure everybody has skin in the game. We can't have mortgage brokers selling 100% of a mortgage with retaining no loss. Uh, So they have no incentive to underwrite the mortgage. Second of all we had lots of banks who put everything off balance sheet and didn't disclose it and didn't put much capital behind it in fact no capital. And third of all we've had a credit rating agencies which didn't have a lot of credibility. So if we're going to do that if we're going to get loan securitization back which is critical to the economy we're really going to have to make much greater efforts. Now A second major issue is bank capital. We've essentially taken a lot of institutions and turned them into banks, so it's critical what we should do with bank capital. Now, one of the things, and this is related, people say, why don't we have international cooperation? Wouldn't that solve the financial crisis? Remember that the thing that we cooperated the most with internationally were the Basel Accords on capital. Basel I, which was in place till about 2007, said if you have a commercial set of commercial loans for say 100 million, you put up 8 million of capital. If you have mortgages of 100 million, you only put up 4 percent of capital and 4 4 million. And why? Because mortgages were deemed to be less risky across the board. And there was no distinction between them. In fact, if you had AAA mortgage-backed securities, you only had to put 2% of uh, capital. So we can say categorically, conclusively, that the international agreement Basel I was one of the major factors causing the financial crisis because it allowed people to game the system and it encouraged them to, to hold on and buy risky loans. Now we have a system called Basel II. This is a system now in place now. And it says, if you're J.P. Morgan or Citigroup, here's how you decide what your capital requirements are. You have your own people do your risk models, and you decide your own capital requirements based on your own evaluation of your own risk. Now, it seems amazing that we would let a bank do that, but it's even worse. Has anyone here ever seen one of these risk models? Anyone? Anyone? I can tell you, unless you have a PhD in math from MIT, you have no chance of understanding it. I doubt whether any director of any bank understands these. The other thing is, they happened to be wrong. They were very wrong for many years. For example, they assumed there was only a one in a hundred chance of <clears throat> the housing market in the U.S. going down. If you make that assumption, you'd be surprised how good your mortgage-backed securities look. But it might be wrong. So that's another thing we need to change. Now, a a third subject we need to deal with is bailing out. Uh, Now, how many institutions do you think there are in the United States that are really too big to fail? Would anyone hazard a guess? Do you think it's 600? How many think it's 600? Well, that's the number of institutions that we've recapitalized. And it can't be the case that there are 600 institutions that are too big to fail. And it's not. 200 of them are small institutions because once we bailed out all the large institutions, the small institutions complained and we bailed some of those out. We bailed out uh, insurance companies. We bailed out uh, Goldman Sachs. We bailed out American Express. So what are our criteria? Actually, we have no criteria. And that's the problem. My view is there are two criteria you can have. One is the key to the banking system, what really makes it special is the payment process, the processing of checks, wires, and cash. So there are probably five or six money center banks that are critical to the payment system and we need to protect them. Second is the concept of too interrelated to fail. And that means, in my view, that the failure of one institution would have to lead to the bankruptcy and insolvency of many, many other institutions. And I think that would justify bailing out Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. But when you come to American Express, it's a credit card company. It wouldn't be good. It would be bad if it went under. But would it lead to the failure of many financial institutions across the world? I don't think so. Instead, some other credit card company would come in. So we need to have a much more articulate rationale for too big to fail, and we need to force the Treasury Secretary to actually articulate that rationale. And the other thing is once we bail out an institution, we need to as taxpayers to have as much upside and downside If you compare how we recapitalize institutions to the preferred that Warren Buffett got in Goldman, it's startling the difference. He got about six times more upside than we did. We put $45 billion into Bank of America. We have only 6% of the upside, although we put in more than the total market capitalization of Bank of America at that time. This is what I call in my book, One-Way Capitalism. We as taxpayers need to have as much upside in these bailouts as we have downside. Next point is just pretty much that we guaranteed everything with banks. We've guaranteed not just the small depositor, we've guaranteed the debt holders. And my view is when you look at the Bear Stearns bailout, who was actually bailed out? The people who were bailed out were the large, sophisticated bondholders, and that's also true of AIG. In my view, that's a big mistake. We need the bondholders to police and help monitor the condition of banks. Institutions like the one I'm chairman of, MFS, are sophisticated bondholders. We don't want to bail them out. We don't want to create moral hazard. We want to give them the incentive to monitor this. And we've taken away a lot of the incentive by guaranteeing too much and bailing out too much. Now, the next point I would like to make has to do with boards of directors. We now see the Fed... We see the Treasury involved with what I would call micromanagement of many financial institutions. We know that Congress passed a law that said an executive of an assisted financial institution cannot have more than one-third of his or her base compensation as bonus. So what happened? Wells Fargo, the CEO, used to have nine hundred thousand as the base. This year his base is $5.6 million. They will not violate that law. But the question is, is it a sensible result? And in my view, the only way to have a sensible result is to have boards of directors be effective in setting compensation, dealing with risk, monitoring the institution. Unfortunately, what we saw was in the financial crisis a pretty much uh, – a really, really poor performance on the parts of boards. And this, to me, is the ultimate condemnation of the model under Socks, Sarbanes-Oxley. As many of you know, Sarbanes-Oxley required most directors to be independent and had extensive procedures that had to be followed. And these were all done in Citigroup, in Lehman Brothers, in Merrill, All of these directors, most of these directors were independent and they followed all the procedures, but they didn't know what risks were being taken and what was happening. So in my view, if we want to solve this problem, we need in these large mega financial institutions to go to a different sort of board model. Small boards with people who have financial expertise and people who spend two or three days a month i 'm on some of these boards. If you go to Citigroups boards one day every other month, and you are not a financial expert, what chance do you have to really understand what 's going on there? In my view, very little chance. <clears throat> I just talk now two more subjects. one is the the general savings rate. If we look at the macro picture it 's fair to say that the at its very base. Uh, This financial crisis was caused by an imbalance. The U.S. ran these huge current account deficits, and China had lots of dollars. Japan had lots of dollars when interest rates were very low. People got very yield-hungry and bought these mortgage-backed securities. Now, in the most crudest, in the crudest sense, what we need to do is to have the U.S. save more and China spend more. And the question is, can we do it? Now, if you look at this chart on U.S. personal savings rate, you can see that in 2006, we actually had a negative personal savings rate. That's not easy to do. And the reason we did it is because of home equity loans. We took out equity in our homes and we spent it. The good news is we're now, this year, going to have about a 5 or 6% personal savings rate. So we're moving in the right direction. Unfortunately, as you can see from the other side, there is more dis-savings going on in the budget process than there is personal savings going on in households. This year, we're already up to $7.2 trillion in external debt. Now, you may hear that the total debt in the U.S. is in the area of 11 or $12 trillion, But this is what I call the really hard debt. This excludes all internal accounts. This is the amount of money that's actually held in Treasury bonds and bills by investors throughout the world. You can't get away from this external debt. You really owe it. And if you see my projection, which is similar to most people, is over the next nine years we'll grow another $9 trillion. So this is a tremendous debt load that the U.S. is taking on. It's taking on this when our foreign holders are becoming very antsy, China owns about eight or 900 billion of this debt. When Secretary Geithner was in Beijing, he was asked a question at a public speech. He was asked, "How should we feel about this eight or 900 billion? Uh, what's the U.S. going to do about it?" And he said, "Your eight or 900 billion is very safe in U.S Treasury." bonds and bills. And the audience erupted in laughter. That's probably not a good thing for the United States. <laughs> so we need to be very careful, and we need to be especially careful about when inflation comes back, whether we're going to inflate away our debt or whether we're going to raise interest and interest rates and keep inflation down. And that brings me to the next point, which is this is my rendition of the Fed's balance sheet. <clears throat> In 2007, the Fed had a balance sheet of about $800 billion, of which over 90 percent were Treasuries. Now it has a, a balance sheet of actually over $2 trillion, and my calculation is your maximum exposure is over $7 trillion. So this raises two questions. One is, does the Fed have the capability of selling securities in order to drain the system of liquidity? That's the way you fight inflation. There are many things on this balance sheet that are going to be pretty tough to sell. Who wants to buy AIG loans here? Anyone? How about the Maiden Lane partnership with Bear Stearns' troubled assets? There are lots of things here that are problematic. So, Let's hope that inflation doesn't come back quickly so that the Fed has a chance to clean up its balance sheet. The second thing is the political will, the independence of the Fed from the political process. The Fed has been very independent, but by getting involved with all these bailouts, we now see for the first time in a long time the Fed really being attacked politically The best-selling financial book, other than mine, is Ron Paul's book, which essentially is titled Abolish the Fed. So that's a pretty brutal attack on the Fed, and it shows how people are really worried about the Fed having too much power and what it's exactly doing. So let me finish up with financial regulation and just say there are lots of bills up there to do lots of things, some of them... Uh, I would say, don't make a lot of sense. Others do make sense. One of the key areas that we're looking at is systemic risk. We want to monitor it. We want to regulate it. There's only one little problem. We have a very hard time defining it and even a harder time identifying it in advance. We will, in my view, uh, close some regulatory gaps. We will manage to uh, regulate financial derivatives. We will impose some, what I view as relatively light, regulation on hedge funds. Um, It would be a good idea for us to have national charters for global insurance companies, but we won't do that. So I think that there are those people who say we need to fundamentally change the whole financial regulatory structure. We need a revolution. That's not happening. There are now recent proposals this week by Senator Dodd to merge all the banking agencies, take away all regulatory power from the Fed. I don't think those are happening. I think we're going to see incremental increase in regulation, and we're going to see somebody, the Fed probably, with some council regulators, have systemic regulatory monitoring jobs, and we're going to see these other changes. So this is just a picture. And I think the other thing we're going to see is the Fed is going to lose – it's going to lose two things. The Fed has been setting mortgage rules and the Fed has been setting consumer credit rules. And the Fed hadn't done a very good job in those. And I think, given the political backlash against the Fed, I think we're going to see the Fed losing those two authorities. But I think the Fed will continue to be a macroprudential regulator and will continue to regulate bank holding companies and the large banks. So, in summary, this is what I see as the six main things that need to be done. Get the securitization program and process running again, not just raising capital requirements, but redesigning them. Third, stop bailing out so many institutions and develop a rationale for it. Fourth is adopt a different board model in large mega institutions. Fourth, excuse me, fifth, Make sure that the Fed maintains its political independence and gets back from the edge of being involved in so many bailouts. And finally, close some regulatory gaps, monitor systemic risk, and don't try to revolutionize the whole regulatory system. Thank you very much.
0: So, oh,
2: great, thank you very much. And, and uh, um, let me say at the outset, um, uh, normally, uh, uh, normally the student would get up and uh, uh, present their paper, and then they would be uh, ripped apart by the uh, by the various professors. And uh, this is a situation where the professor has gotten up and presented his paper, <laughs> and the students are left to figure out what the hell to say. Um, uh, at least in my part, and I won't speak for the professor over here. Um, but uh i I guess there in having uh, uh read uh, uh bob's book and then and then hear this presentation um it brings to mind a, a a couple of things that I find about this book that I think is particularly interesting and particularly relevant uh at at this uh point in time uh where we probably are in the midst uh, at least in washington uh, in the midst of writing um the uh Probably the, the the broadest financial regulatory act since the thirty three and thirty four acts. Um, whether they'll be right or not, at the end of the day, is you know will yet to be determined. And uh, coming on the heels of, if not you know the most recent of financial crises to have occurred in 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 the regular cycle of financial crises, um, uh, perhaps the most severe. Um, and I appreciate uh, appreciate the the qualification of my fellow panelists that it was not a correlation with his tenure at the treasury that the, that the crisis occurred. I, as a side note, I'd mentioned when I was in Congress, I used to represent a district that had uh, the highest concentration of chemical plants and hospital beds. And, uh, but I always followed by saying there was no correlation related to that. And the chemical <laughs> people were really glad that I would do that because they were worried about, it. Um, but I think, uh, uh the other thing I might, as a preface, say, I, I did have the opportunity some years ago uh, to read uh, one of uh, Mr. Posen's other books, and, uh, uh, which is sort of the the uh, uh, Bible of mutual funds, if you will, or, the, or or the primer of mutual funds. And this book is a little bit different. Uh, what I see in this book uh, are a few things. I think, on the one hand, I think uh, he he does uh, give us a critical analysis of what happened. Uh, to get us to the financial crisis that uh, began in 2007 and culminated uh, in 2008 and we were living through in, in 2009. And as we were talking beforehand, uh, this is different than some of the other books that have come out um, that have been more of a who said what to whom, when, and play-by-play and, play a, and, and a lot of color commentary. And this is much more of, of a critical look at what was going on. I think it also... Uh, gives a very strong defense um, of the of the financial market system uh, as providing benefit to the overall economy, notwithstanding the fact that mistakes were made, uh, not just in the regulatory framework where they certainly were. Um, but also uh, in the financial markets themselves, where uh, uh, I, I almost felt uh, I was seeing a, a, a discussion, and, and he got into a little bit in his discussion about uh, uh, Basel uh, Basel II. But but also in the discussion about uh, the, uh, the the credit default swap market and the analysis done on that internally, that there was almost an over engineering and and a too too great of, of a reliance. On on uh, specialization, uh, that no one was seeing the, uh, if you will, no one was seeing the forest uh, for the tree, um, and and that that led uh, that led to a situation which I view as interesting um, from my own vantage point, of that we had a situation, in many respects, uh, where you had a very small part of the overall U.S. mortgage market, the subprime market, and the alt-A market, which in comparison to the conventional market and the prime market in normal times was very small and very much the tail of the dog, and that the tail ended up wagging the dog uh, uh, because of of tremendously poor underwriting and uh, 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 poor uh, poor oversight uh, by the regulators, Over uh, over a couple of administrations, um, and not just one regulator, uh, and and excessive leverage uh, based upon uh, uh, highly engineered, highly structured uh, assumptions made by very smart people, uh, but uh, but lacking uh, any any gut instinct. And I think that, uh, and and I get the impression that Bob uh, cuts through that uh, in his book. Uh, Then I think what he does, um, which is particularly relevant to me, as I've been spending a lot of time uh, uh, over the last few weeks, as have others in this town at least... Um, reading various legislation. I've read the administration's proposal. I've read the House Financial Services Frank proposal. Uh, I've been reading, the uh, as much as I can, the Dodd proposal uh, in the last uh, 48 hours, I guess. And And today we have before us the Posen proposal. Um, And uh, I think there's a lot of, you know, I I, I guess I would say, as I say to others, um, uh, it's a very thoughtful approach. And there is a lot in here uh, to like. Um, There are certainly things that uh, one may disagree with, but uh, this is perhaps – uh, the first that I've seen where someone has taken his step back, done a critical analysis, uh, looked at the overall f- system and how it's worked, where it went wrong, and then come up and given a prescription, uh, albeit his prescription, but nonetheless a very thoughtful prescription of of what one might do uh, as part of a regulatory overhaul, designing a new regulatory scheme. And finally, uh I, I think what this book does which i think is uh is is hopefully beneficial um uh you know in the event that uh in the event that we are not able to uh uh eliminate the risk of financial in crises in the future um uh that this book i think can serve somewhat in the way that uh uh I don't know if it was your first book on mutual funds, but, but uh, as, as his mutual fund book did, is this book uh, is somewhat of a manual or a field manual uh, for policymakers, regulators, and market participants for the next big crises to come down the, the, down the way, uh, to take a look back at what was tried, what worked, what didn't work, and uh, what, what, what you might otherwise do uh, the next time uh, we may be confronted with this, so uh, I think it is a I think it is a extremely relevant uh, work uh, with all that's going on, not just in Washington, uh, not just with our counterparts around the world in the policy making uh, sector, but also for financial market participants uh, who are going to be affected, who are affected right now, and will be affected by the outcome of the uh, of the process.
3: Good. Thanks, thanks very much. And I, I want to start by saying that I also very much enjoyed uh, reading this book. And everyone should understand that, that Bob's presentation is really just the tip of the iceberg. It, it's like giving you the, the greatest hits, but there is so much in this book. It is just, uh, it, it really is, comp- the word comprehensive does not begin to describe this book. It's, uh, it's virtually a textbook or a treatise, um, uh, as, as, uh, as he has done for, for mutual. Hopefully
1: it's more interesting than a textbook. No, oh, no, it is,
3: it is. Um, you know, it's not quite, though, a textbook because the textbook has to be, you know, generally has to be incontrovertible. And, and uh, by this I mean, you know, Paul Krugman has written textbooks, and they are very good textbooks. And obviously, you know, it's almost like there's two Paul Krugmans, one who writes textbooks and one who writes other things. Um, and... Uh, um, uh, so, so this is not quite that because obviously we're too close to the crisis for anything to be uh, incontrovertible. And I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start by by um, uh, some praise, and then I have a number of criticisms, and uh, and I'll I'll say some of them, and I'll, I'll give some of them to Bob uh, uh, separately. Um, uh, so, you know, like I said, there's just an amazing amount of material in here. It, it's almost like getting into his stream of consciousness and and hearing his thoughts on you know sort of issue after issue. Um, and, and my, my criticism, and I'll get to, is I think not all of it is, is fully informed by the political and legal uh, constraints and the, the, the realities that uh, the nation faced uh, last fall. You know, this doesn't take it away from the strengths of the book, and this, the strength is really the highly detailed and generally well-informed analysis. The other strength of it is... Uh, you know, something that I think we all expect from uh, from, from Bob is the clarity. He's it, it, just incredible at explaining complicated things in, in an understandable and accessible way. Um, so that – so, uh, you know, with that as, as background, let me say I, I agree with all of the six key recommendations that he uh, had on the screen. Um, and, and this includes – to stop bailing out so many firms, now I think it's uh, actually I, I want to mention I, I testified exactly that two weeks ago at the House Financial Services Committee, um, so I, I'm on the record there, and I recognize the irony of one of the five former members of the TARP Investment Committee saying we need to stop bailing out uh, so many when when I voted on CIT. I, I actually don't remember how I voted, but I certainly did vote not one of our best investments. Um, uh, so let me mention some specific uh, strengths of the book um, the. The discussion of off-balance sheet vehicles and proposals for reform is really just remarkably clear. Uh, it's, it's still, I think, many people do not understand well um, how those off-balance sheet entities, uh, you know, really underpinned part of the crisis and the events of last August 2007. And this is really just a, a model of clarity. There's a number of ideas in here about rating agency reform, uh, and, and rating agencies is one of the things where, when when I ask my students. You know what caused the crisis, or, or as we say in Washington, who do we blame? Um, uh, You know, about half of them go first to the rating agencies. Rating agencies messed up, and everyone, everyone gets it. The rating agencies get that too, but it's almost like people say that, and they then they stop. And Bob doesn't stop. He says, "Here are my specific ideas on how to reform rating agencies." Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, that that they're they're viable. I'm not sure they're they're you know. In the end, I, I kind of almost felt like. There's a uh, part of the the central feature of some of the ideas is having a third party in the middle, and I just I worry that that would turn into the equivalent of a fairness letter that, you know, sort of uh, gets written in corporate acquisitions, and, and I you know I sometimes wonder about um, in how fair are the fairness letters, um, you know how uh, how impartial they are, but again there's specific ideas here, and those are badly uh, lacking and badly needed. The discussion of regulatory reform, which he, he highlighted is just just excellent, and I, I would vastly prefer his plan to any of the other ones that uh, that were mentioned. Um, as part of this, there's there's a couple things to highlight. There's an excellent discussion of Glass-Steagall and the repeal of Glass-Steagall in both directions. So there's skepticism that repeal was an important factor behind the crisis, but also a, a really refreshing skepticism about the benefits of some of the consolidation that we've had in the uh, in the wake of um, of the repeal. And there's a great story about Fidelity issuing credit cards and sort of how you know that that sort of didn't, didn't go in the direction that, uh, that the firm expected. Um, as part of the regulatory reform, there's an excellent discussion of regulation based on activities, not based on size. And sometimes, where the focus is so much on too big to fail that, you know, not, not always, but sometimes people lose track of, hey, you really want to focus on the activities and what are risky activities. You know, the Bank of New York Mellon is a pretty big firm, but I think most people recognize that its activities are not, you know, not particularly risky for the most part, um, and so there's a really excellent uh, discussion of that. There's an excellent discussion of, of Fed independence, which you highlighted here. And I, I recognize the Fed is not popular now. It maybe it's I, actually I don't I don't know. It might be particularly unpopular at Cato, unpopular at Cato. <laughs> um, and I think that's tragic. as a tragedy. That's too bad. Um, and it, and it, in a sense, I think it's, it's ironic. The Fed to simplify greatly, um, I would say one of the reasons behind the Fed's popularity down on, on Capitol Hill or over on Capitol Hill is because of their independent action. You know, they, they used their uh, emergency powers, thirteen three. they did things, and now after the fact, members of Congress want to you know, blame and say, hey, you acted, you never asked us. You, how come you did all these things you never asked us? And if anything, my concern, I think the real concern is that the Fed is not independent enough and is losing independence, and the book really... Uh, just discusses that in, in excellent, uh, really excellently. And then there's, finally, there's an excellent discussion of uh, corporate governance and uh, borders of directors, which also is, is, is badly needed. And then finally, the, the, the last praise, and then I'll shift to some criticism, is the big picture of macro and fiscal, which, uh, which Bob put up on the screen, and uh, is something that you know, cannot be said enough. And again, there's a strength here is incredible in how clear and how, how cogent and how accessible the analysis is. Okay, so let, let me shift and mention a few things that um, that I, I thought could bear uh, some um, some criticism. Uh, and, and this is ha- really related to the TARP and to a uh, housing policy, which are two of the things I worked on a lot uh, at the Treasury. So I spent a lot of time at the Treasury working on housing, and uh, the paper that Mark mentioned, it's 50-plus pages. About half of it is focused on housing. Um, uh, and, and I think there's not a lot of stuff on housing in this book, but it really just it just misses the boat. I think it's just uh, it's just wrong, flat wrong. Um, and and uh, the, my observation is that it's very easy to say we need to do more on housing. We need to do more to prevent foreclosures. So you know, 535 people say that. 536, um, including the uh, you know some some of our bank regulators. Um, so. Uh, But it's vastly harder to actually have a plan that does more to avoid foreclosures and is politically feasible and seen as fair and that does it effectively. And so everyone understands that subprime was at the root of the crisis and that doing more to – to prevent foreclosures would have improved asset performance. And in a sense, instead of recapitalizing banks from the top, you imagine if you could just wave a wand and avoid every single foreclosure, well, you've improved asset performance from the bottom, you know, poof, no, no, no crisis. Um, there still, of course, would have been hundreds of billions of dollars of losses on subprime housing, right? Those losses, in a sense, were like original sin, right? At the moment of, uh, of, um, of the, the loan going to someone who couldn't afford their house, someone took a loss, um, but but the crisis uh, would, would, would not have happened. A- a- and what policy is really focused on is affordability, saying, you know, this is just like late-night TV. You know, I'll get you into that car for two ninety nine a month. It's the same thing. It's policy, both at, in the Bush administration and the Obama administration, has focused on can people afford their monthly check and trying to find ways to help people afford their monthly mortgage payment. So that is where policy is focused. And as Bob rightly points out, that is of little help to someone who is deeply underwater. Right? You can afford your monthly payment, but you bought a house in Riverside, California for 300 The house is only worth 200 You have a pretty big incentive in this country to let the bank foreclose. And heck, you might as well walk across the street and buy the house across the street for 200 and you're, you're much better off. A- and the idea of doing more for that, I, I think, is just frankly unrealistic. Because you know, look, Modigliani and Miller won a Nobel Prize for showing that doing something to avoid that situation means someone has to write a check for $100,000. And it, it, you are asking the 80 or 90% of Americans who are current on their homes, some of them working three jobs to stay current, to write a check to the, the 5 or 10% of Americans who bought too much house. And look, we all know someone who could have afforded this house and they bought that house. They could have been in a prime conforming loan, they went into a jumbo. Uh, or maybe a subprime loan, and I think it's just unrealistic to expect that that there will be a program that is based on ba- on, on saving underwater borrowers. And, and in fact, I, I would look at uh, uh, the last presidential campaign. President uh, Senator McCain, as a uh, dream uh, Senator McCain, um, uh, introduced exactly such a plan: the idea that the federal government would buy loans from banks at par. And that is basically saying to all the all the borrowers, you can't afford your home, you're good, don't worry about it. Saying to the banks, you had a loss, don't worry about it, you're good. That plan was widely attacked. It was just it was widely attacked. Now, had that been done, he introduced it in the summer, we wouldn't have had a crisis in the fall, right? I mean, so in retrospect, he was exactly right. But I think it's just just completely unrealistic to uh, expect that to happen. And, and And, and, you know, frankly, the choice as Americans is, do you want to do more to help underwater borrowers, or do you want to hire more preschool teachers? Do you want to have a stronger defense? Do you want to do all the other things that that we expect our government to do? And I I think it's unrealistic for uh, anyone to expect more to be done to help people who paid too much for their homes versus hiring more preschool teachers. Okay, so that's housing. Part three of the book focuses on, on the TARP and on the crisis. And... There's some things in here which I, I think I disagree with and some things that are stated that I think are a little non-too critic, not critically enough. Uh, there's a school of thought that that asserts that the TARP caused the crisis of September. And as far as I can tell, this is based on a chart. I mean, that's the level of, of analysis, notwithstanding that the assertion is made by people who are tenured at, at very, uh, very good um, economics departments. Uh, it's hard for me to, to believe this. It's kind of a baffling assertion. It's in the book. It's not approved of, but it, it's repeated um, un- uncritically. Uh, uh, you know, introduction of the TARP certainly had an impact on confidence. That everyone understood that things were bad, and maybe people didn't get it. And and having uh, the chairman and the secretary go up to Congress that Thursday night of the week that Lehman failed, in a sense, was like a memo to all American families: Hey, this situation is worse than you understood, and, and the economy did this. Okay, So so for sure, introduction of the TARP had an effect on the economy. But, I mean, let's be serious. The the, the source of the crisis were the losses that were taken, not the introduction of the TARP. And then the, the failure of Lehman and the impact on the reserve fund breaking the buck and leading to a panicked flight from money market mutual funds and the commercial paper market locking up. Um, and in a sense, what we had was really a panic, right? We had a panicked flight from money markets, and that's spilled over to commercial paper, and then major corporates, the FedExes of the world, calling the treasury and saying, hey, we're not funding. Uh, in a sense, what do you do when FedEx isn't going to make payroll uh, next week because they can't roll their paper? They claim they can't roll their paper, you know, could they or not? And this is a bank run, um, and, and the actions taken to stem that bank run were, were the actions of last Columbus Day, the, the capital injections and the uh, FDIC loan guarantees. And there's a lot of criticism of those here, and, and I think some of that criticism is not um, is, is not, quite, uh, not quite on the point. So I, I have a few, I'll just go a tiny bit more. Um, and one of the criticisms is what Bob highlighted, the idea that all the banks got capital, that there was not a, a differentiation between the strong banks and the weak banks. That's one. And then two is the terms. The sort of Warren Buffett got much more generous terms. And those are both exactly accurate criticisms but I think the book, it, it could use a little bit more um, discussion of the, the pros and cons, right? So in this nation, there is no mechanism to force a bank to take government money, right? It, 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 there's, there's, there's no law, right? Maybe in, in Russia that works. In the United States, that, that, uh, that doesn't work. And if the public policy objective is to stabilize the banking system, the, the way we saw it at the Treasury was we wanted the capital to go broad and deep and quick. We wanted every bank to take it, and to take it immediately to stabilize the entire system. Look, we didn't care if this bank failed or that bank failed, but we wanted market participants to see that the system as a whole was viable. And that, in in light of the legal constraints, that required the terms to be such that the capital would be taken up. And so that explains the terms, right? I mean, in a sense, it's the opposite of the Sopranos, right? The Sopranos would be, hey, that's a nice bank, I sure wouldn't want anything bad to happen to it. Why don't you take my public money, <laughs> right? That's the surprise. This is the opposite. This is, here's a deal. You're 5%, you know, it's basically 5% capital for five years. You know, from a bank's perspective, not looking forward and seeing all the pitchforks of AIG and all that stuff with compensation, it's a pretty good deal. And so banks, banks uh, took it. So that really explained the terms, like, yes, we understood Buffett did much better, but we want, well, there's a public policy objective here to get the money down, to, to stabilize the system. And the same thing with the FDIC loan guarantees. There's a combination of those that, yes, there could have been a, a guarantee on 90 percent of bank borrowing instead of 100 percent. But this is in the middle of a panic flight that had not been seen in this country since the Great Depression. And the view from the Treasury was that we did not want to go part way. We had done that throughout the crisis we are constantly behind, except obviously with the GSEs, where obviously this overwhelming force was used. And this was it. We said we, the Secretary said, we want to get ahead of the crisis. And to stop a run, a, a, a flat guarantee is necessary. And so I would say, you know, the idea of partial measures is just, uh, I, I think, is, is unrealistic. Um, Now, two of the the harshest critics of the TARP have recently released a paper that calculates the the costs and benefits of those actions that that are criticized in this book, and they find a net benefit to society of about $100 billion. So there's the banking system increased in value by $132 billion, and the cost to the the public was about $15 to $50 billion um, by by what we gave up by having uh, more generous terms than Warren Buffett. So, I mean, that's a, to me, that's a pretty good deal. I mean, obviously, we could have, uh, you know, ex-ante, um, the idea was have generous terms, so they take the money, and ex-post, it worked out pretty well. Now, you know, I fully understand the difference between ex-ante and ex-post, but I think it's tough to write a book like this and not recognize that ex-post, it actually worked, uh, it actually worked um, pretty well. Um, all right, so... Uh, you know, I, I, don't wanna, I don't want people to come away. I, I'm being a little harsh here because, I, you know, I think it's, it's worthwhile just being, being straightforward. Um, but it really is, this is really an excellent book, and there's just so much in it. Um, and, and really, uh, you know, I don't want any of my criticisms to take away from all the praise I had a, at the very beginning. Okay, so why don't I stop there and, um, and turn it over. Thank you for that.
0: I think we've got a time for a few questions. There, one right here in front. Hi, uh, this Robert Wenzel with EconomicPolicyJournal.com. Do you believe there is something uh, that, that could be considered a business cycle theory that explains, in general, financial crises? Or do you think each one has its own specific causes not related to others?
1: Well, I think there are certain patterns we see in financial crisis. In the emerging markets, we see currency defaults and related to sovereign debt. In the advanced industrial societies, we see banking crisis. And I think we can identify certain things like high leverage or mismatches between assets and liabilities as factors that tend to drive these. But uh, there are two caveats. One is that um we have been witnessing a, a very significant increase in the number of crises. If you look from World War Two to 1975 and then you look from 1975 on it's increasing and it probably has to do with globalization with lower transaction costs more dissemination of information so we know there are going to be more but I think this is the the key is why we continue to have them no one knows when we're going to have a financial crisis so Bob Schiller in 2004 said the real estate prices are way out of whack Etc. cetera. But if you had sold real estate in 2004, you would have most missed three years of appreciation. And that's one of the real powers behind these bubbles, which lead to the bust is we don't really know when they're going to uh, burst. And so therefore, they have a power that keeps going. And uh, we know it's going to happen, but we never know when.
4: I, I'm I'm Gene Rothman. I'm retired now, but I spent most of my career as a portfolio manager for one of the other Boston mutual funds. So I have a question for for Bob. Um, it seems to me that the the banks particularly large ones, but also a lot of the medium and smaller sized ones are going to wind up with, when the dust settles. as looking a lot like regulated public utilities. Uh, put put the mic a little closer. They're going to look a lot like um, public utilities, a regulated public utility type of thing, I think. But my question really deals with Morgan and Goldman, because these are banks and bank only, name only. They're really gigantic hedge. It's not oversimplication to be sure, but they're really gigantic hedge funds. And they're so interconnected they can't be allowed to fail. So if, when, they, when they lose, the taxpayer is responsible. When they gain, of course, the partners and the shareholders uh, win. What, how do you see those two firms in particular or any other investment banks that become that large um, in terms of how we you know, regulate them or, or get get involved with them, if at all, going forward?
1: Well, I think one thing we can do is we don't have to allow large institutions to get bigger. So we allow J.P. Morgan to make a number of acquisitions. It's hard to break up existing institutions, but we don't have to allow Wells Fargo to buy Wachovia. We don't have to allow um, Bank of America to buy Merrill. And we, J.P. Morgan, uh, buy Washington Mutual. So one thing we could do is that. The second thing is, remember, Goldman was not a bank. Goldman was allowed to become a bank because it faced a short-term liquidity crisis. And then it was allowed to become a bank in about one day. So I think we're in a, a difficult dilemma, because if we think that commercial banks that also do underwriting are too risky and they are really hedge funds, there's a tendency to think we ought to separate out the underwriting. But we know that, in a sense, the independent underwriter like Goldman or Morgan Stanley, has the most short-term liquidity risk because they don't have retail bank deposits and they don't have access to the Fed. So I'm very re- reluctant to go that way. And in the end, the only thing I can say is um, – well, third is I was going to say it doesn't help to break up Morgan or to restrict Goldman if this isn't done throughout the world. Because we have a global market, we can't have Chinese banks, Japanese banks, French banks, and moreover, Goldman would just set up something in the UK. So in the end, all I can say is we have to have two things, a lot of capital uh, more capital in these institutions that are, we're going to have to bail out, and second of all, we start to have to have good boards of directors who actually uh, monitor it. I don't like the idea of having the Fed set up these things as regulated public utilities. I, I think they'll never be able to keep up with the pace of innovation.
0: Uh, Bert, uh, Bert Ealy, a, a
5: he consultant. Uh, Bob, I look forward to reading your book, which I have purchased. Um, I have a
1: follow-up. Just make sure that you put a five-star review on Amazon, <laughs> even if you don't read it.
5: <laughs> Only five—that's um, the highest. Sorry. Um, the uh, my question follows up on the last one about capital, and you talk about, as many others do, about having increasing capital. You know, my rough calculation is a dollar of equity capital cost four to six times as much pre-tax as a dollar debt capital. Therefore, there's a powerful tax-driven incentive to leverage. My question for you is uh, Is this. Um, how can the regulators realistically expect to stay ahead of the financial engineers and the lawyers and the tax accountants as they try to figure out new ways to in-run capital regulations because equity capital is so expensive to debt capital? Yeah.
1: Well, Bert, I must say I'm, uh, I've read a lot of your stuff over the years and the SNLs and others, and I uh, very much uh, uh, applaud your uh, uh, insights. I think the answer is the regulators can't stay up. And so what we need to do is to, first of all, have good boards of directors. Second of all, my view is we ought to have a portion of every bank's capital be subordinated debt. That will give the big institutions who own the debt a real uh, skin in the game to monitor those financial institutions, and they'll do a pretty good job. And third of all, I think um, we have to have, you know, sort of a a, a different risk-based model. We we went from a very simplistic model in Basel I to an ultra-sophisticated one that no one can understand. So I have a revolutionary concept, subcategories, that is – We have mortgages, but we have high, medium, and low risk categories based on loan-to-value ratios. So I think one of our problems is that a lot of our rules are all or nothing. All or nothing rules are always going to be gamed. Uh, And another example that would be off-balance sheet accounting. If if the result is either all off-balance sheet or nothing off-balance sheet, that will be game. So maybe what we ought to do is say, okay, this is off-balance sheet, but we want to specify what your obligations are, how much risk you're retaining, you need to put up some capital, and stop doing these all or nothing. So those are my basic suggestions. It's not an easy thing, but I think those are the directions I would go.
0: Hi, Cristina Aquino, Embassy of Brazil. I'd like to know your opinion on um, Prime Minister Gordon Brown's proposal that was discussed during the uh, meeting of the G20 ministers in St. Andrews last week. It didn't get much attention here in the U.S., but it was a proposal to create a tax for uh, bank transactions and create a fund that would avoid taxpayers' uh, money to be used to save banks. I'd like to know your
1: Okay. Yeah, this is what's called the Tobin tax. It's been debated for many years, and I think most people and most economists—I'm not an expert—and have looked on it and don't or do not favor it, and view it as a, a burden on the whole financial system and one that's uh, not appropriate. I think we do have the question of um, who's going to finance these bailouts, and I think that. Um, If we started to confine the group of of institutions that were bailed out to a much smaller number, in the U.S., I think the number is probably around 20, not 600, then we could think of whether we want to have some sort of assessment of those 20, and we could also think of having higher capital requirements for those 20. But I think to impose a tax on the whole global financial system just seems to me uh, counterproductive, and I think the Treasury took that position uh, in St. Andrews.
6: Uh, j W. Varette from George Mason Law School, Bob, I appreciate your uh, view on on Treasury taking equity and the, and the importance of letting the taxpayer have more upside for their investment. but I worry a little bit about the effect of Treasury having that voting power in the bank and the and the inevitable i think political pressure that'll be placed on banks in which Treasury has voting equity to do effectively sort of up off off budget uh, transfers and subsidies to interest groups and I wonder how if there's any way to effectively uh, uh, police that and limit that. I know at AIG they tried to have a trust as a sort of buffer. It seems to me that trust has a lot of holes in it. Uh, And I know Corcoran and Warner are talking about a bill to kind of limit that. But I just wonder what you think and uh, how to limit the effect of that and the cost of that, if that's maybe worth the, the upside for the taxpayer, if there's maybe some intermediate sort of instrument, some sort of equity instrument give the taxpayer upside, or just sort of what your reaction is to that idea?
1: Well, I I should point out that Jay was one of my best students when I taught at Harvard, and since I've written, since the book went to publication, I read his stuff, which is good. And I don't think it's necessary, upon reflection, to have the government take common stock. What the government could do is take preferred stock, but a much higher level of preferred. Now, Phil points out that, excuse me, a much higher level of warrants, So Buffett got roughly six times the level of warrants. It's true that if he took the position that Paulson did, that it was a stigma on the banks that would take preferred, and therefore you had to get everybody to do it, then you have to make it a very attractive offering. I don't view that. I think when the Treasury bails out someone, it's not a stigma, it's actually an advantage to them. So that's one thing. The second thing is it doesn't seem to matter much whether you have preferred or common. Uh, I mean, Wells Fargo, I think uh, the total position we have is very small, but when they, had, they were going to have a conference in Las Vegas, Congress lobbied them not to do it because it was too lavish. And people tell me that in Citigroup, Uh, basically, they don't blow their nose without someone at Treasury uh, approving it. And so I think the reality is that once you have these large federal investments in these institutions, uh, there is a lot of micromanagement. And therefore, I'd like to see them as temporary. I'd like to see how is it that we get out of these and how do we move toward a different model. And Uh, I guess the more I think of it is uh, I'm okay with preferred stock, but I like a lot more warrants on the upside. So uh, that would probably be an appropriate balance.
0: Well, if we have no more questions, I want to thank our audience and thank our panelists and uh, welcome everyone upstairs to the Winter Garden for lunch.
1: Thank you.